This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Welcome to Emmaus. We're so glad that you're worshiping with us today. Um, This is our third week of Advent. And just a reminder, we did create that Advent guide that y'all can follow along with every week. Um, You can also access that on EmmausDenver.com. And after we finish up our Advent series in January, we're going to start a new series on 1 Corinthians. So that is something exciting to look forward to. Um, If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today I'm going to read through John 17, 1 through 17, 13. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him all authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and you have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, but that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning to everybody quarantining at home before they go on their Christmas travels. I was kind of surprised. Like, I feel like most years, Bridget and I are like the only ones in Denver during the holidays. But this year, there's like quite a few people in Denver. Um, so we're on our, we're on week three of our four-week Advent series, and it's kind of the time of the year where we stop whatever we're doing on the church calendar and reflect on the, the Advent of Jesus, and if like me, you're not a Latin scholar, it just, it just comes from the word for arrival, so we talk about the, the two comings or the two arrivals of Jesus, we, where we could say basically the two advents of Jesus. So the churches have sort of approached Advent uh, in a couple of ways, but historically within the evangelical church, uh, we typically take time to, with the four weeks leading up to Christmas, to fill out our Amazon wish lists, to make sure that all productivity stops at work, and then also to meditate on classic works like Die Hard, and this year we have the new Wonder Woman movie coming out. So I don't know why Starbucks wants to take away all of our sacred traditions, but but they have. So um, so since the culture war has taken all the good things out of Christmas, as a church we thought we'd focus on the incarnation of Christ, um, his first arrival, his first advent, the time when the eternal God 
was made known in the person, the real flesh and blood person of Jesus Christ. And if you're following along in our Advent guide, today you know that we're talking about joy. Um, Tim mentioned that. It's a, the, the joy that the incarnation brings. And we're talking about the joy of Jesus, the real joy that Jesus had as a walking, breathing, flesh and blood person. And last week we talked about the, the peace that Jesus had. And we're focused on how Jesus trusted in the promises of the Father instead of like the disciples who trusted in their own explanations. We talked about how Jesus trusted in the promises of the Father and that gave Jesus peace. And so that's what we talked about last week. And and this week we're talking about his joy. Uh, And if you wanna put the, the first slide up on the screen, I know we just read it, but at the end Jesus said a few things and then he says that my joy would be fulfilled in you. And as I thought about that, I thought about his joy, the joy of Jesus. And I was like, what are instances of Jesus having joy in the Gospels? Like, like when is Jesus a joyful person? And we kind of talked about it last week, right after the Last Supper, Jesus is betrayed by uh, one, of his, one of his 12 closest friends. Right after that, pretty much everybody abandons him. Um, then he is in agony, described as being in agony in the garden, um, ultimately before he's put up on the cross uh, and takes on the full wrath of God. So, so I think about that and I'm like, it makes sense to me that Jesus is called the man of sorrows. The harder part for me, the difficult part for me this week is when I read this verse, these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy When I read that, it's hard for me not to be like, your joy? What's your joy? And so I looked, because I was curious, where is Jesus joyful in the Gospels? And there's actually quite a few references to the the joy of Jesus. And in Luke, it talks about him rejoicing when the disciples come back from proclaiming the Gospel. Uh, We've also got a handful of instances where where Jesus makes intentional, gross exaggerations to kind of make a point. Uh, he talks about swallowing a camel while you're straining a gnat out of a, out of a glass of water. He talks about uh, walking around with a, with a log kind of sticking out of your eye. And I know, I doubt these things would make, uh, you know, a Netflix series. Um, maybe they would, the, the standard's pretty low for those. But most commentators believe that Jesus is using a form of humor when he brings up these gross exaggerations. Another kind of interesting thing that sold it for me is when Jesus, this is recorded in a couple of gospels, the disciples actually have to push away the children who are sort of coming up to Jesus. And you think about Jesus as like a joyful person. Children don't run up to men of sorrows. They run up to like joyful people. And and Jesus had this, this, must have had this sort of presence about him that children felt comfortable with and sort of ran up to him. And I thought about that every time Quinn comes over uh, Bridget greets Quinn, and Bridget is like the picture of joy, like Quinn, and Quinn's like all animated and excited, and I'm like Quinn, and it's like she's like I don't I don't see the same joy on your face, so she's not nearly as excited. <laughs> she's not nearly as excited for me, and I I was thinking about that, and I was like Eric's gonna know, all the little kids are gonna like Lauren more, <laughs> but once they <laughs> but once they get older, that's where you can that's where you can sneak in and, and get them on your side, but. Kids flock to Jesus. So Jesus had to have been a joyful person. Jesus was a joyful person. 
but he, but he was also a real person. So in the world, he's, he has real moments of joy and real moments of sorrow, whether that's from abuse or even shedding tears when his, when his friend died. Jesus had the full range of emotional experience. And kind of a side note, I thought this is just interesting as I thought about this. Jesus, as the perfect person, was never always sorrowful or always joyful. Jesus as the perfect person shows us that, that it actually we shouldn't always be sorrowful as much as we shouldn't always be joyful. And this is the same thing that the old says. There's a, there's a time for sorrow. There's a time for joy. So I just things like that. Just, it's a bit to, to run decisions and have also to run. We should respect. Here, that's the morning. Here Jesus got a of joy. Here Jesus one tradition says full of joy. Jesus is act on joy and we have in their ministry. And more surprisingly, he says full of joy is in his book. Morning, that the full of joy is in And by God's grace, by the work of the Spirit, able to access this joy that not just offers moments of joy that, that this world does offer, but the, the full measure of joy that Jesus offers. So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to open our eyes so that we can see and experience the full measure of joy that Jesus is talking about this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you. Thank you that you reveal yourself in a person. I thank you that you are a high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses. I thank you that you are a joyful person, a sorrowful person. And, and here, Lord, you, you tell us that the full measure of your joy is what you give to us, Lord. So I pray that you give us wisdom as we walk through um, a difficult text. I pray that you give us wisdom, Lord, to, to see what, what filled up your joy so that we could share in that joy. Thank you for this morning and um, pray that your spirit would work just to bring the presence of the Father close to us um, for our encouragement and for your worship. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so I'm gonna start... Um, I'm gonna start this morning with something I've never started with and may never start again. I'm gonna start with a grammar lesson. Um, maybe we'll just get the, like the boring stuff out of the way. Uh, but before you totally check out, this is a lesson that makes the difference between a moment of joy and the full measure of joy. Look at uh, the verse that's on the screen again. It says, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And it's kind of, when I first read that, it's easy to think, okay, this is the joy his joy, Jesus' joy, is what fulfills the disciples, which is the people he's talking to. It's, it's sort of his joy to whatever degree then making the disciples fulfilled. But that's not exactly what the passage is saying. And it's not, it's not wrong, but it's an incomplete translation of the original language. And that's not, that's not anybody's fault. If you've ever translated from one language to another language, there's, there's elements of the original language that are harder to transfer over to whatever language you're transferring, for, transferring to. And, you know, if I think about someone in our church like Andrew, who creates dictionaries for people groups that, are, that don't have dictionaries. Um, I think uh, I grew up in like a pretty nerdy high school where at the time, one of the times the only foreign language credit we could take was Koine Ancient Greek. Um, so that's just sort of like the environment that I came up in. But the only, the easier way to sort of pick up on these little differences in translation, a simple way to do that is just to go online and compare different translations. You can look at the ESV, you can look at the New American Standard, you can look at the NIV. There's a ton of different translations that most of the times are almost exactly the same, but you can see if there's any little nuance in the 
when, when they translate from the, English, from the Greek to the English. But that word fulfilled, so I kind of want to focus on that word fulfilled because this is an important point for the rest of the sermon. But that word fulfilled is a, is a participle. And I, that word means nothing to most of us. It's just an action word, like a verb, that describes another word like an adjective. It's, a, it's an action word that describes another word. So for instance, right now we have working volunteers in the back. That's, a, that's an action word, working, that describes the volunteers in, a, in the back. That's just a, a, that's an English participle. So, uh, lost my place with all the participles. Okay, so here we go. So the participle is an action word. Uh, it's actually not describing the disciples. It kind of seems like it's fulfilled in the disciples. It's actually describing the joy of Jesus, it's, it's the joy of Jesus that's now filled up, that's now fulfilled. It's also, uh, it's the kind of action word that says something has happened in the past and is now affecting the current reality. And for grammar nerds, that's a, a perfect tense verb. But it's the joy of Jesus that's actually been filled up to the max and now it's completely full. Now the joy of Jesus is completely full. And it has its effects on the present, which is why Jesus is now offering this filled up joy to his disciples. And if you go to the next slide, you can see how the NIV translates this. They're trying to, they're trying to capture what this does. He says, I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. The full measure of my joy. So Jesus here isn't talking about the moments of joy like he would have experienced with the kids or maybe making jokes to the Pharisees or even necessarily about the excitement he had when the disciples preached the gospel. This is talking about something much greater than those moments. This is talking about the full measure of the joy of Jesus that's now being offered to his disciples. And I bring that little grammar lesson, because I think it's important to really see what Jesus is offering us in this passage. He's not offering us the fun time he had with the kids, which he did. He's offering us the full measure of his joy. And the full measure of his joy is found in the presence of the Father and the work of the Father. So we'll talk about for the rest of that, the full measure of Christ's joy is found in the presence of the Father and the work of the Father. So that's what that's what, and that's what Jesus is offering you. That's what Jesus is, is praying right here in this passage, is praying that's found in his disciples. So we're gonna jump back now uh, to verse one. We're gonna jump back and, and so we can sort of better understand what brings this full measure of his joy, what's, what's filled him up, what's, whatever has filled up the man of sorrows, this full measure of his joy, uh, this this. Uh, high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, then we kind of want to understand what fills up his joy so that we can share in the same joy of the presence of the Father and the joy of the work of the Father. So we'll start with the, the first five verses beginning in chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. 
So here's Jesus, right after trying to encourage the disciples with the, the promises of the gospel, right after that, in front of the disciples, he begins to pray for them. So here we are at the beginning of his prayer. And he says that it's time for the son to be glorified. It's time for the son to be honored, to be robed in beauty and majesty because the son has given eternal life to all that the father has given him. And in this verse, in verse four, he says, he's accomplished the work that the father gave him. Jesus has joy in the work he's accomplished. He's revealed the father to those the father gave him. But I wanna hone in on what it says in verse five. Right at the end there, it's like a little summary statement at the introduction to his prayer. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. With the glory I had before the world existed. And it's like one of those statements where like the more you think about it, the more difficult it becomes to sort of conceptualize You're like, Jesus is talking about the glory, the honor, the majesty, the pure joy he had with the Father before existence existed. Like before anything was, God was completely satisfied in and of himself. The Son being loved by the Father through the Spirit, the Father being loved, loving and approving of the Son by the Spirit. It's it's this satisfaction, the, the internal satisfaction of the, of the Father and the Son, this, this wonderful mystery of the gospel that reminds us that God didn't create because he was lacking anything. God didn't actually create because he needed to get anything out of it. He created out of, his, out of perfect satisfaction before anything existed. He created with the sole purpose of sharing that satisfaction with people who were made in, their, in his image. And this is, this is important too, that Jesus brings us up this, this idea of glory before the world existed because he's talking about the source of all happiness. Jesus is talking about the source of everything good, beautiful, and true. Amen. Jesus is talking about the pure and unadulterated joy between the, between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit and the Godhead. Which is interesting because in this scene where we're at in the book of John, we have this guy walking around in sandals It's a homeless guy that basically grew up as a contractor and he's asking the creator, the creator of all things to bring him back into the presence of God, the very presence he enjoyed before the world began. Now, if anything could fill up, if anything could bring the full measure of the joy of Jesus, it would be the very presence of the Father. And I kind of want to camp on this idea for a second because I don't think we... We think about this a whole lot. Think about what Jesus had to suffer in the incarnation. Like he had to leave the perfect joy of the Father to step into our broken world. And how does he step into our broken world? He started as a fragile baby in basically a barn surrounded by animal poop. And I think about that, and as soon as I say that, I think about the zoo, because it smells, and I don't like the zoo. Jesus voluntarily left the joy of the Father to step into creation as a little baby and the first thing he smells is like the zoo. It's probably even worse than that. And, he, and, he, and it's even more crazy, he didn't enter the world as God on his own terms. He didn't show up and say, I'm God, I do what I want. He could have. He actually showed up and submitted himself to the law. 
He submitted himself to the very thing that was meant to redeem wicked, rebellious sinners. He voluntarily submitted himself to that. And then I think about the weakness. Jesus gets tired. Jesus gets hungry. Jesus gets emotionally spent. And the joy that he had with the Father before the world began knew nothing of anything that could be considered a weakness. And then you think about positively, like what does it mean for him to be in the presence of the Father? God himself, who is the fountain of all joy, the fountain of everything that's good is being poured in full force on the Son, a flood of pleasures that only the Son could appreciate. A, a, a flood of pleasures that only the Son could appreciate because he's God in himself. And then you think about the closeness in the intimacy of this relationship and the joy in this relationship. This is, this is a level of intimacy that a husband and a wife could never dream of. This is a level of intimacy that a mother and a child will never have. This is the intimacy of the Godhead sharing one being in the person of the Father and the person of the Son. We can't imagine that kind of joy. And you think about this, and this is this is a constant and never-ending stream of joy because it's a joy that existed before the world began, before time existed. It's a pure and constant, timeless joy that comes from the satisfaction of the Father and the Son and the Son enjoying that satisfaction. The presence of the Father, the presence of the Father is what fills up, what gives Jesus the full measure of his joy. We could go on, we could compare the joy we expressed as created beings to the unimaginable greater expression of joy that the creator himself can express. We could talk about how much God takes joy in his creation, which he does. How much more joy does he take in his son? We could talk about how much more the father would enjoy the son than you and I could possibly enjoy anything in this world. The presence of the father. That's what brings the full measure of the joy of Jesus. And here he is at the end of his life, having accomplished the work that the father gave him, here he is delighting in the joy he had before the world began. And if we can begin to imagine any element of that joy, we can understand what would be the full measure of the joy of Jesus in the presence of the father. So how do we even begin to access that kind of joy? How do, we, how do we have the kind of joy that's rooted in the full measure of the eternal fellowship between the Father and the Son? How is that, how is that even possible? Well, Jesus kind of helps us out with that. You can look at verse six. He says, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. It's our the series titled, Jesus is God Made Known. Jesus has manifested the character and the presence of the Father to us. That's, that's the same thing he said in, in verse three and four. He says, knowing the Father is eternal life, and I've accomplished the work of revealing the presence of the eternal God to the people you've given me. So Jesus enables us to access the very presence of the Father. And it's interesting because I think one of the disciples is probably thinking, 
the same thing most of us are thinking. Okay, Jesus manifests the Father. Jesus makes his presence known. How does that work? Like, how do we experience the fullness of that joy? How does Jesus give us access to that joy? Uh, look at John 14, 22. One of the disciples kind of asks the same question. He says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? He's like, wait, how do you reveal the presence of the Father? How does that work? And look at what Jesus says. In the next verse, he says, he answers him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Here Jesus is talking about the two primary ways the Lord makes his presence known to us. Through the spirit dwelling in us, that's what it means by making our home with him and through the keeping of the word or through the word. He's talking about the spirit and the word. The spirit and the word enable us to access the eternal joy of the Father and the Son. It's the spirit and the word that enable us to access this full measure of joy that Jesus has. And this is what Jesus basically says in the next part of his prayer. He talks about the centrality of the word in the presence of the Father. Look at John 17, verses seven and eight. He says, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Jesus has made the presence of the Father known to us through the words that you gave me, the words that the Father gave the Son. Amen. And it's knowing the truth of these words through the Spirit dwelling in us that gives us the joy that comes from being in the eternal, perfect presence of the Father. It's the word in the spirit, the word in the spirit bringing the full measure of the joy that Jesus is offering. And I, I think it's one of these, these truths that most of us kind of know, but it almost seems like a little too basic for us. Like, yeah, yeah, we're, word in the spirit. Because when we're, I mean, be honest, like when we struggle with joy, when we're struggling with joy, where do, where do we go? I mean, we don't typically go to the spirit and to the word to experience the eternal full measure of joy that's in the Father. I mean, lately, most of us go to something that helps us pretend that we're, we're living in a world that isn't real. Lately, we go to a story to entertain us or to escape. Um, we go to gaming or like a streaming service. I, did, I looked, I just did a super quick Google and there was a survey of this year of 2,000 people that to be in the survey, you had to have internet access and you had to have access to a streaming service. That's so they kind of narrowed it down. Of those 2,000 people, on average this year, they streamed eight hours of content a day. And, and it typically crushed three shows a week. Binge watched three shows a week. And I, I promise you that that number is only gonna increase because the things in this world only give us moments of joy. Yeah, joy, but moments. So you need more and you need more and you need more. They don't offer what the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit can do through the word of God, giving us the very presence of God through the Spirit. 
I thought of, I think about this, and you know, I know some, this gets dangerous going off notes. Um, I think about this and I know, I know people, I know some of you that do go to the word, that do in prayer go to the spirit. And I think there's still times where, where we struggle. We struggle to have joy in the word. Um, I know I deal with that personally. It's not like I am just excited every time I open up my Bible. I think one of the things I struggled with this week that I maybe be helpful to share is, is I really, really, really wanted the Lord to help me figure something out. And it stressed me out and I prayed for it. I went to the word for it. And I think at the end of the day, the thing that sort of convicted me is I was more concerned about my glory than his glory. I was more concerned about getting something to work on my schedule than on his schedule. And I promise you that if we go to the word through the spirit with our agenda and not his, he does not want to comfort us with his presence. He does not wanna fuel us as we pursue our own smaller glories. And I think that's another theme you could sort of trace through this verse, these verses, is Jesus is dead set fixed on the glory of the Father. So when we are dead set fixed on the glory of the Father, he welcomes us. He uses his spirit to transform us. He uses his word to comfort us with his presence. But Jesus knows we struggle. Jesus knows we struggle. He had disciples that struggled then. He's got us, we struggle now. And so he continues by reminding us the full measure of joy that's not only found in the presence of the Father, but the full measure of joy that Jesus has in doing the very work of the Father. Look at how he continues his prayer, uh, starting in verse nine. He says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And it's almost shocking how one-sided this is. God gives people to the Son. The Son is honored and glorified in them and is praying for those people and keeping those people in the presence of the Father. And he basically said the same thing in verse two. Jesus said that he's accomplished the work that he's sent to do by giving eternal life to all that the Father has given him. And it might seem a little harsh to us to hear Jesus say, I am not praying for the world. It might seem a little harsh to us, but this is, this is a central aspect to the beauty of the gospel. This is one of the most comforting realizations that you can have in the person and the work of Jesus because he's not actually telling us, right here, he's telling us it's not about how much time you spend in the word. It's not about how much joy you have in the presence of the Father. It's not about whose glory you're fixed on. It's about me accomplishing the work. Jesus is dead set on bringing every single one that the Father has given him to the Father. And yeah, you might be ignoring the full measure of joy that's offered in the presence of the Father through the Spirit and the Son, but the Son and the Father are one. And in their unity, they're both ensuring that everyone the Father gives the Son will glorify the Son and will end up being with the Son in the presence of the Father. It's very one-sided because the gospel ensures that God will rescue his people. 
despite everything in us that resists him in that. So Jesus prays out loud so that we would see the full measure of his joy in his accomplishing the work of the Father, kind of despite us. Jesus prays to ensure that it's his joy in completing the work, but he doesn't stop with reassuring us. He goes on to talk about how we can share in the joy of that work ourselves. Look at what he says in the next couple of verses, starting in verse 11. He says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Just mentions that Judas was not because he lost him, but because he's fulfilling scripture. He's accomplished the work while he was in the world, but he isn't completely done. So he prays to the Holy Father, the Father that is one with him. He prays to the Father to continue the work that he's accomplished while he was in the world to keep them in your name or in your presence or to, or to manifest the name of the Father like he says earlier. And what's interesting is the reason he gives. He says, keep them in your name. Why does he want them to keep them in your name? It says, he says, keep them in your name so that they would be one as we are one. And he gives that reason because the full measure of the joy of Jesus is to reveal the Father to every single person that the Father has given him through all eternity. And how can Jesus do that? Jesus is on earth right now with his disciples revealing the Father to the disciples, everyone that God has given him. How does Jesus continue to reveal the Father and accomplish his work when he's no longer physically here and he's leaving to go to heaven? How does he do that? He does it through you. He does it through you. He does it through us being one as the Son and the Father are one. Just like the union of the Father and the Son reveals the Father, now the union of the Son and the Father to those who are left on earth is how the Son continues the work to reveal the Father to all those the Father has given him. You and I have access to the full measure of joy, the joy of Jesus, when we demonstrate his character, his love, and the person of the Father through our union with Christ. When we participate in that work, we, we are participating in the work of the Son when we obey and keep the words of Christ. And I, I like how Jesus puts this in Luke. Uh, Luke 6, 32, he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great. And he says, you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and to the evil. Be merciful as your heavenly father is merciful. Here Jesus is saying the same thing. 
When you love others at no benefit to yourself, you're stepping into the work of the Son to reveal the presence of the Father to all the Father has given the Son. You're loving the ungrateful and the evil like Jesus loved us because we are ungrateful and evil. You're showing mercy to those who don't deserve mercy. I guess that's in the definition of the word because we don't deserve mercy. Because Jesus still loves us and is still revealing the Father to us. Every time you love your spouse, your coworker, your friend when they're unlovable, you're participating in the son's work to reveal the father to all the father has given him. Every time you serve on Sunday at no benefit to yourself, you're participating in the work of the son to reveal the father to all that the father has given him. Every time your GC serves their people in their place as a community, you're participating in the work of the son to reveal the father to all the father has given him. The full measure of joy, the full measure of the joy of Jesus is found in accomplishing the work of the Father, both while he was on earth and now through the Spirit working in our union with him. So what filled up the joy of Jesus? The presence of the Father that he gives you access to through the Spirit and through the Word. And also the work of revealing the Father we're united to Christ, you can participate in that every day. And he said these things while he was still in the world so that you would have the full measure of his joy in you. And thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift, access to the full measure of the joy of Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, It's a wonder that you would make your home in us. It is a wonder that you would reveal your character through through us, Lord, through, through broken vessels. Lord, I thank you that the gospel reminds us that it's not about how much joy we have in the Father. It's not about how much work we participate in revealing the son. It's about the son single-handedly accomplishing the work you sent him to do. Lord, I thank you for that encouragement. I pray, Lord, as we see what filled up the joy of Jesus this week, I pray that we would believe the words that he's given us and we would turn to you and ask for your spirit to work to glorify you in our day, Lord, so we could be impressed with your presence. And we look forward to the day when we, we don't just believe this by faith, but we see it by sight. We look forward to that next Advent. So I thank you for this time this morning, and I thank you for just your grace and your word and your patience with us. In your name I pray, amen.